along where Jamie left off last week, going to be in uh, Luke chapter 13, starting verse 31. For those of you, if you're new to the Bible, that is going to be found on page 873 of the Bible. It's going to be the top of the right-hand column on that page. So if you want to find that, um, I'm going to read the passage, and then what we'll do is I will pray, and then we'll get going on this passage before us. So Luke chapter 13, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, today we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we thank you that you did come, that you did die, that you did raise, that you did ascend, and all of those things are the down payment and the guarantee that you are coming back. To bring us into life eternal with you. Lord, I pray that you would open this passage, open our eyes to see the gloriousness of who you are in this passage before us. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. Teach us of you. And I pray. Amen. For many, many of you know that George Harrison was the lead guitarist for a UK-based band that you might have heard of called The Beatles. You know, he said that one of his biggest breaks in life was when he became a part of The Beatles at 15 years old, back in 1958. And his second big break in his life was when he left The Beatles in 1970. Well, in November of 2001, George Harrison passed away of cancer. And in 2002... A pine tree was planted in Griffin Park in L.A. Well, then you fast forward a few years to 2014, and there was a heavy drought in L.A., in Southern California. And as a result of that heavy drought, the tree was weakened, and it was infested by insects who killed the tree. And of course, those insects were beetles. Now, to quote the L.A. Times from 2015, when the tree was replaced, George Harrison was quoting ancient spiritual wisdom when he entitled his 1970 solo album, right after he left the, the Beatles, All Things Must Pass, never suspecting that the proverb would one day apply to the fate of a pine tree planted in his memory in Griffin Park. This is what we call Irony. Now, if you look up the definition of irony, as I did this week, you're going to find there's several different definitions. One is, it's a noun. 
And it's the use of words to express something different from or opposite to their little literal meaning. Or it is an expression or utterance marked by the deliberate contrast between the apparent and intended meaning. Or the third one is the incongruity between what might be expected and what actually occurs. Now, for the purposes of our study this morning, the, th- the one we're going to be looking at, the, thing, the definition I fit, think fits best, this passage before us, is actually that third one, the incongruity between what might be expected to happen and what actually occurs. This kind of irony is all over the passage this morning. As I move through the passage, I plan to point out some of these ironies. Now, the main point of the passage includes one such irony, and that is this. Jesus' rejection is our redemption. So proclaim with all the saints, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, Jesus' rejection is our redemption. So proclaim with the saints, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as we work to understand this main theme and the ironies attached to it, we're going to have three road markers along our way. First one is this. Jesus works undeterred. That is going to be found in verses 31 through 33. Number two, Jesus laments. This is going to be found in verses 34 through 35a. And number three, we will see that Jesus gathers his saints by his death. Now, this should take about 40 to 45 minutes or so. So point number one, Jesus works undeterred. So going back to the passage at the beginning, it says this. At the same hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Like I said a couple weeks ago when I preached, when you see the word therefore, you have to go back and see what it was there for. Well, I think the same principle applies in the text today when it opens with at the same hour. So to think, look back and see what this hour is, we could look at back at what Jamie preached on last week. So to set the context, Jesus was preaching on entering through the narrow door. He tells the people that there are many among them whom he has ministered to who will not enter the kingdom but will be cast out. They will be told that the master of the house does not know them. He finishes his teaching saying that there will be people from the east and the west and the north and the south like the birds of the air from two weeks ago who will come and recline at table. So this teaching is the immediate context for where we find ourselves today. And in the first irony that I noticed was here in verse 31, where it says, Some Pharisees came to warn him that Herod wanted to kill him. But numerous times in the past few chapters of Luke, we find that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, and they're peppering him with questions, trying to discredit him, trying to look look for a way to get at him. You know, Matthew 12 says, which Matthew 12 may or may not be chronologically prior to this, but Matthew 12 says this, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So why are the Pharisees coming to warn Jesus if they were actually conspiring against Jesus? And this is where we run into another little bit of irony. 
Where do they get their, where do they get their information? I think Jesus gives us a hint where he thinks they're getting their information from. He says, go back and tell Herod. You know, some of the commentators that I read this week think that, G- that the Pharisees were doing Herod's bidding when they came to Jesus to warn him of his death. But either way, we're not, sh- we're not sure why the- where the Pharisees got their information, but we know that Jesus isn't biting. Jesus' response to the threat is to, under- is to be undeterred and to let the Pharisees and Herod know exactly what his plans are and where his destination is. Look at verses 32 and 33 again. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now in Luke 9.51, we read this. This is where we looked at this several months ago. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem. This was known. This was, this was evident by his course of travel and the way he was speaking. And he told them to tell Herod if he wanted to find him and kill him, he could meet him in Jerusalem, where all the other prophets were killed. In this way, Jesus is actually predicting not just his death at the hands of Herod and the Jews, but he's actually predicting his resurrection. He says, Tell the fox, on the third day I finish my course. The irony of it all is that the Pharisees and Herod and Pilate were acting in their own self-interest as they conspired and then killed Jesus, which on his face looks like a loss for Jesus and for the kingdom that he was announcing. But in reality, they were merely pawns on the chessboard of time where God was playing both sides of the board. Peter confirms this at Pentecost sermon when he says this in Acts 2, 22-23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wondrous signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What they meant for evil only fulfilled what God had determined for good. In response to the machinations of Herod and the Pharisees, Jesus, the greater Joseph, says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, which is a quote from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This undeterred, dogged, irresistible, irony-filled fulfillment of the task for which he was sent is the sure ground on which we stand as we navigate life in a fallen world. The plan for Jesus to come and to die and to be raised was not the end of the plan. Think back to Luke chapter 9 that I just mentioned. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The plan for his death and resurrection was a plan for him to ascend and take his place at his father's side, ruling over the present age and bringing into fruition the age that is to come through the already and the not yet. 
The plan of God is not in peril, no matter the headlines that we see or the godless ideologies so prevalent around us. But the ironies of his first coming are the ironies of his work in us now, in and through us now. The suffering and the persecution of the saints throughout this age are the very things that the Lord is and has and will continue to use to bring about the incongruous ends of the plan of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 12 bears this out when it says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of brothers brothers, had been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. You know, I read a post this week on Twitter of a pastor who has a girl in his church who is most likely to be fired because she refuses and she cannot in good conscience partake in the Pride Month festivities at her work. Your brother and sister, we need to play the long game. We need to play the eternal game. When you feel the pressure of the seemingly overwhelming weight of the court of public opinion, you can stand firm because Jesus is still on the throne and he is undeterred. And he will accomplish his mission. Dear sister, when you're dealing with the same attitudes of grumpy children, or you're dealing with a loveless marriage, know that it is that pain that Christ, through the Spirit, is is using as he works in you in eternal weight and glory. To the one who is burdened with unbelieving family members and friends, remember that Jesus isn't done yet. And all the ends for which he is working will be accomplished in the manner in which he determines. Remember that in the economy of God, what has been true ever since the beginning is that what looks like losing here is actually winning. It is the means by which God is bringing about his ultimate victory when the new heavens and the new earth come down. Jesus is still working. He will continue until the appointed hour when his course will be finished and he will receive all of the glory. But don't let this dogged pursuit of Jesus make you think that Jesus is unfeeling and uncaring in regards to the carnage left in the wake of a world full of sin. This is what leads us to point number two. The lament of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often. Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, the first irony we see in this section is found in the very name of the city being lamented over, Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, Salem meaning peace. Jerusalem means the foundation of peace or city of peace. And yet, the lament of Jesus is over the violence and destruction brought about in that city. Do you hear, do you see the heart of Christ with the people actively opposing him? And more specifically, those under their care? The prophets were called to bring, call people back to God. God made a covenant with his people. And this covenant included blessings, but it also included curses. 
And in Exodus, the people replied to God and saying, all this we will do, calling those blessings and cursings to account on themselves. And they still rebelled. The people had brought the curses of the covenant down on their head by rejecting the rule of God and going after idols. The Old Testament is filled with prophetic warnings to the ethnic peoples of God to return to the God of their fathers. The fathers that Jamie mentioned last week when it says this, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. They refused to listen. And this is what was behind the lamenting cry of Jesus. Like a good shepherd, he desired to tend his sheep, but those who he had placed over them only abused them. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 24, is too long of a passage for us to read right now. But in it, the Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, men like the synagogue leader and the Pharisees. They were feeding off of the sheep instead of caring for them. It was their unrighteous leadership that led people away from true worship of God. Notice in the lament of Jesus that the main desire that he was that he could have gathered their children, gathered the children of Jerusalem, the ones under the abuse of their leaders, but they were unwilling to relinquish control. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord tells the shepherds that he will be against them, that he will remove them from their place. And that he will leave them without food. He will leave them desolate. Like the house of Jerusalem. Not only would the Lord be against the false and selfish shepherds. Say that three times fast. He would seek out his scattered sheep. He would gather them himself. You know, I love the rich Old Testament imagery that Jesus employs here. Of a bird brooding over her young. With protective wings. We see this in the Psalm of, Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. We see it in Psalms. We see it in Isaiah. We see it actually in the language of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, where the Spirit is hovering over the creation. We see it in the pillar of smoke that stands between the Israelites and the Egyptians at the edge of the Red Sea. And then as it leads them through the wilderness. We see it again at Mount Sinai when the cloud envelops the mountain as Moses meets with God and he is given the law. We see it again as the glory cloud descends on the tabernacle and over the temple. We also see it at the baptism of Jesus when the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes down. We again see it at the Mount of Transfiguration when the cloud comes and envelops the mountain yet again. There are several, place, there are several other places as well, but here in the lament of Jesus, we see the longing of Jesus to fold his covenant pe- the covenant people of God under his protective rule and care. And there's another beautiful but somewhat strange place where we see the same language employed, and that is in Ruth chapter 2 and Ruth chapter 3. In Ruth chapter 2, Boaz tells Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and the full reward be given to you by God, the, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge, you have come to take refuge. But then again, we see this in Ruth chapter 3, where Ruth sneaks into a barn and lays at Boaz's feet in a very strange passage. And when he realizes, he says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you 
are a redeemer. What I think we can glean, and the pun is intended because we're talking about Ruth, from these passages is that this language that Jesus is using is a description of the actions of a redeemer. The brooding over like a mother bird is what both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are seen doing over those for whom he has redeemed. Jesus had come to redeem a people for himself, but the people of old Jerusalem and their, and their leaders were standing in the way. But this leads us back to an irony, back to the irony of the name of the city of Jerusalem. It is through being a city against peace when they killed the prophet, Jesus, that the new covenant was inaugurated, which culminates in the coming down of the new Jerusalem, of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the stone which the builders rejected from Psalm 118 that we read this morning. Jesus is the true foundation of peace with God. He is the master of the house who will bring in from the east and the west and the north and the south. But Jesus is also the one who will send the unrighteous away to desolation. The resistance and unwillingness of the leaders of Jerusalem who prevented the children from being gathered is what caused the judgment of desolation to come to their house. What a warning this is for us pastors and elders. Hebrews 13 and Ezekiel 34 both tell us that we will give an account for the souls and the lives of those under our care. And I can tell you that this is one of the way, this is a weighty and terrifying reality. Studying this passage this week was a sobering thing for me. As we saw in the first point, the Lord's work is undeterred, and He will accomplish the thing that He had set out. So the question for your pastors is this. Are we going to be lamented over or are we going to be commended for our care and patience and guardianship over the people whom Christ has gathered? But this weight also lands on parents with their children. Your children were given to you by God to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How are you doing? Or are you by your actions showing Actions and words showing your children who God is and their utter dependence and their need for a Redeemer? Or has your attention toward the cares of this world communicated to them a lack of need for Him? Whether He is treated like a tertiary issue in your home or whether they believe that it is up to them to be right with God. Jesus says that if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, It would be better that a millstone was hung around your neck and you were drowned in the sea. Jesus takes this seriously. Jesus warns of causing the weaker brother to stumble. We cannot allow our Christian freedom to be offensive to a weaker brother or sister. Paul said if he was eating meat offered to idols and it caused someone to stumble, he would never eat meat again. Even if your conscience is clear in regards to any number of activities, That doesn't mean you can flaunt that freedom at the expense of a weaker brother or sister. We must be careful, as Romans 14, 13 tells us, to not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. With all that said, we do need to be a church that celebrates Christian freedom in others. 
and are not easily offended and not bind each other to each other's con- to our conscience. I heard this the other day and I thought it was really good. A mature saint is easily edified, but the opposite is also true. Now, if you're an unbeliever to- here today, I want to speak to you directly because this passage has many things to say directly to you. Jesus is lamenting over the state of the unbelieving people, which in our context includes you. If you go back to Ezekiel, you find this plea from the Lord in, verse, in chapter 18. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. What Jesus was lamenting was that people did not do this. They did not turn to him. And they prevented others from doing so as well. Let this not be your story this morning. We find in 2 Peter 3, 9-10, through 10, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bottles will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Jesus told Herod and the Pharisees that he will continue his work today and tomorrow and on the third day. This Jesus is telling them that the time is not infinite. The day of the Lord in First Peter or in Second Peter chapter three will come, and after it does, there will be no more chances. There's a finality to that day. Jesus is going to gather his people under his protective rule, and he promised that those who turn to him in repentance and faith, he will in no wise cast out. If you turn to him, then you, if you do not turn to him, then you will be like the house of Jerusalem that was left desolate. I would encourage you to look at this pa- the passage from last week and listen to Pastor Jamie's sermon, which you'll find on our YouTube page. Just look up Pickle Baptist. You'll be the latest video posted. And if you have questions, just talk to the person who brought you today or anyone else that looks like a regular around here. And I know that they would love to help you. Now, one of the scariest realities in all of Scripture, is that there will come a time when the Lord will turn us over to our own desires due to the hardness of our heart. Romans 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is in part the desolation that Jesus promises in his lament. We saw in Ezekiel 18 that the door does not desire to do this, but because of his just and righteous nature, 
This, this is the curse that we incur by our sin and rejection. In this fact, we come to yet another irony. The curse of being turned over, brought on by the rejection of the people, led to Jesus' death, in which Christ took the curse of Adam for us and sealed all of those who trust in his name. And through his death, has brought us into his new covenant kingdom as the new Adam, which takes us to our final point. Point number three, Jesus gathers the saints by his death. This is the end of that final verse, verse 35. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, with many prophecies in the Old Testament or in the scriptures, we see a near and a far fulfillment. When we see a near fulfillment, it's a true fulfillment, but it seems like there's, there's something missing. There should be something more. For example, we see several, of these, several in the prophecies of Jesus. In his life, there was a fulfillment, but it seemed like there was something else needed, something better. One example is the very first prophecy in all of Scripture, which is found in Genesis chapter 3. We call it the Proto-Euangelion, which is the first gospel. When God promises that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. When Jesus comes, he says Satan is cast out in John chapter 12. And then in Hebrews, we read that his death, that in his death, Jesus destroyed the devil. But we also read in Romans chapter 16 that God will crush Satan under the feet of the saints through Christ. So which is it? Well, it is all of them in a near way. Though all of these fulfillments lead us to, a, to the far and even better fulfillment at the end of Revelation, where at the end of the millennial reign, Satan will be destroyed forever and cast into the lake of fire. Each early fulfillment is a defeat of Satan, but they all lead to the final casting of Satan for the final fulfillment. I think there is a near and a far fulfillment here in this passage this morning. It says this, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the near fulfillment, we obviously think of the triumphal entry at the beginning of the Passion Week. When all the people from Jerusalem come out and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think this is definitely one of the fulfillments being pointed to when Jesus says, you will not see me again. But it wasn't complete, was it? Because this lament is directed at the leaders of Jerusalem. And he says to them, you will not see me again until you cry out. Well, at the triumphal entry, the leaders of Jerusalem were not crying out. They told Jesus, tell the people to be quiet. And then he responded with the famous line, if they are silent, then the rocks will cry out. So there must be a greater fulfillment yet to come. One other fulfillment is seen right now in this very room. Peter says that we are all living stones being built into a spiritual house. In the already, we are the new Jerusalem, the church. And every time we take part in worship, in in the Lord's Supper or baptism, we are saying with the saints, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But even this can't be it. This can't be the full fulfillment. 
there is a final fulfillment in the not yet. When Christ returns to reign forever in the new Jerusalem, but this time he isn't coming in humble estate, like the triumphal entry. No, instead he's riding on a white horse, not a donkey. And on his side is written a name, faithful and true, and he will then reign forever. And when he comes and the trumpet sounds, as his, we as his saints and the citizens of the new Jerusalem will mirror the triumphal entry and we will meet him in the air and we will shout with all the saints of all time and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think Psalm chapter 118 that we read this morning at the opening bears this out. Let me read this again. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The stone, the foundation of peace, Jesus, who is rejected, has become the chief cornerstone in the new Jerusalem. Then it says this, that this is the day that the Lord has made. The day of the Lord. The day in which the final snake crushing, the day in which the final and perpetual consummation comes. Now, if you take last week's passage and this week's passage and line them up and read them together with Psalm 118, it's really fantastic, the parallels. And in the final day, the day of the Lord, the multitude from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation on earth, the people from the east and the west and the north and the south, the birds of the air from two weeks ago, will all cry together, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is the glorious irony that undergirds this rich passage this morning. As Jesus was crying in lament for the hardness of the heart over the current Jerusalem and the threats of violence and death he received, it was that very hardness that brought about his death. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. It was by the very death that Herod threatened that we are drawn to him. John chapter 12, verse 32 says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus' death at the hands of the rebellious children of the old Jerusalem is the means by which he gathers his children, the citizens of the new Jerusalem, under his brooding wings of, of protection as our Redeemer. He is rejected. His rejection is our redemption. Now we can proclaim with all the saints, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have come, that you, Jesus, have come in the name of the Lord and brought peace to those who are far off, peace to those who are near. Lord, forgive us when we act in a way 
that causes a weaker brother to stumble. When we act in a way that causes our children not to recognize their need for you. We act in a way as husbands that do not lay the burden, that act in a way as, as husbands where we do not wash our waters with the water of the word, as it says, as Paul says. Lord, forgive us if we have acted in a way that has prevented your children from being gathered under your loving care. Lord, we thank you that you are God and you are good. And in spite of us, you are gathering your people of your kingdom for your glory. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. Matt obviously wants to get going. (laughs) So I will read our assurance of pardon, which is found again in Psalm 118, verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation.